Hi, it's Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. It's awesome to have you here. And if you're a return listener, thank you. Thank you so much for supporting the show and for listening in to this series on points of view. If you want to make sure you don't ever miss an episode, be sure to click the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss anything. And if you feel so inclined, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. It makes a big difference to me. It gives me a little boost, keeps me going, and it also helps other listeners know that there's huge value in these wonderful interviews that I'm running. This is a series on points of view, and it's been amazing. I just love hearing the different perspectives and experiences that the different interviewees bring to the table about how to see themselves in the world better to make them a better leader, and hopefully you too. Today's guest is Sean Murphy. He is the author of Work Tribes, The Surprising Secret to Breakthrough Performance, Astonishing Results, and Keeping Teams Together. I really loved this book. I thought it was well-written, very detailed, and really practical. And it's all about belonging, which is one of my favorite topics, and it's what I wrote my book, Loyalty, on. He has nearly 30 years of consulting experience and advising companies on implementing organizational change and culture change. He really focuses on applying human behavior and needs to help achieve business results. So it's my philosophy too, people first. And this helps create a satisfying experience of work for employees and better business all around. He is currently the Director of Organizational Development and Workplace Trends at Silicon Valley startup, Bluescape. So welcome, Sean. It's so exciting to have you tune in from, where are you? Are you in California? At the moment, I am in California at the northern tip of Silicon Valley, where everybody wants to be. Yeah, what is that? Why is it's like the giant mecca of the IT world? Well, I think because you've got a lot of super smart people here who are really doing some cool things, and some people are just super smart and they're not doing cool things. But on the whole, it's really just there's this kind of electricity around this giving birth to the next great idea. Um, and I live in San Francisco, and I live in the heart of San Francisco uh, called Soma, south of Market. And you see all kinds of very successful tech people in their 20s driving their Teslas and their fancy skateboards that are motorized that go 20 miles an hour. And But it's neat to be around all of it because it's where ideas are generating from. And so it's enjoyable. It's, oh, yeah. It's kind of yeah. There's some really cool stuff there. Uh, my aunt and uncle live in uh, just outside of San Francisco, and they took us into, is it Pan Alto? Did I say that? Is that? Palo Alto. <laughs> yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're <laughs> And I swear to God, we saw Elon Musk in one of the little cafes talking to an avid group of listeners. I'm like, Elon! Ah! <laughs> Fangirled all over the place. Um, just try to act cool, awesome. but didn't work. Um, so yeah, I get that there's a huge amount of innovation and you're on the cutting edge cusping cusping edge maybe both <laughs> uh leading edge of novelty and new and innovation and we were just before we hit record we're talking about your startup bluescape and the collaborative software that you're using with some oh, name dropping disney and marvel in the creative space which is really really cool yeah and i think that all ties into what you did with this your latest book work tribes this is your third book second or third book Second book. Second book, yeah, which is all about how people gather and work better together. So in this book, it's about the people stuff, and then Bluescape is about people stuff, but using technology. Would you mind speaking a little bit to Bluescape and what you're doing there? Sure. So I always like to tell people, um, and, and, and this hopefully is true 
it's, this translates kind of globally, but uh, here in the States, we have a network called the Weather Channel. And oftentimes when you watch the, the meteorologist talk about the greatest storm that's coming, they're at some big screen, right? And then they're, they're touching the screen and things are moving around. So imagine that kind of technology being available to your team. And instead of doing weather forecasting, you are, you're creating a movie or you are designing a new building or you're designing a piece of furniture. And instead of passing things back and forth via Google Docs or some email application, what these, what we call large format display screens, which are like 86 inch screens that are touch enabled, you and your team can interact with hundreds of thousands of pieces of content in one workspace as you're creating that next great product. And it could be things like, oh, let's say you're making a new chair. And as you go through iterations of that chair, you have a history of how that chair has evolved. You've got everybody interacting in it, in it at the same time. So we create a collaboration software that brings people together in ways that help them work in more natural ways instead of just everybody looking at one screen, like what you and I are doing right now, with Bluescape technology, you have a shared screen, and that shared screen could be shared with multiple people around the world, but everybody's interacting with that same content on these large screens and are able to give their input more easily than say over the telephone, because you know, sometimes you're on the phone, you're waiting for people to finish talking before you talk. You don't have to worry about that with Bluescape because it's, as we say, it kind of democratizes the way people collaborate because you don't have to wait anymore. You could just add your two cents whenever you want and people will see it. So you get rid of that awkward, uh, uh, as people are trying yeah. to share what's going on. <laughs> exactly. As our CEO likes to say, gets rid of the, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Um, or there's a statistic that he'll, he'll use that says like 93% of conference calls are dominated by men. So, you know, this is a way to kind of help level that playing field of participation, collaboration around work. How does it do that? Like, Yeah, good question. Because it's the same. I mean, if you have a group of people around the table or a group of people in your collaborative software, it's still men, women, mixed of everybody. How does it reduce that? Yeah. So what's interesting is let's say you and I, are, uh, you and, I and three other people are in the same room and we're looking at one of these large format display televisions. You don't have to wait for me to stop talking to collaborate or contribute. You can do it while the meeting is happening and everybody's gonna see what you're contributing because there's part of the way the technology operates is as you're adding content, we see that, oh, it's Zoe who's adding this content and the leader of the meeting can say, okay, Sean, you know, that's interesting, but Zoe just added some really interesting new ideas to the workspace. We need to talk about that now. So you no longer have to wait for your turn. You can just start adding your ideas uh, whenever you want. Um, and it allows for that quicker iteration of ideas versus that kind of very uh, patriarchal, I'm going to wait for the boss to stop talking before I say anything because I don't want to interrupt him. You can just do it. Oh, wow. My brain is processing that. See how that might work. So if somebody's really irritating you, <laughs> you can just upload a photo or add something to the thing and you could, that's the way to shut them down or to get sure, some attention. <laughs> Yeah, true, sure, sure, <laughs> a bit of sure. subterfuge, but I can see how that would go faster because then you don't have to wait your turn. Yeah, you know, there's something to be said for um, removing uh, the conference table, meaning instead of everybody gathering around a conference table, everybody's gathering around a monitor 
that happens to be really big. It's touch enabled. And suddenly you're that, that kind of formality that exists from our kind of conditioning of when we come into a conference room, we sit at the table, the head of the table are the bosses or the leader of the meeting. And we wait for that leader to start and we wait for that leader to give us permission to contribute. That goes away because now everybody's just looking at the screen and saying, okay, what, what do we like about this current version of this new chair that we're creating or this new script for this movie? You know, we had all these edits. How do those edits translate into this next version? And people could write notes all at the same time, handwritten. You could add images to be able to better communicate what your thoughts are. And you're doing it all real live at the same time. So it makes it less formal and more dynamic, especially for creatives who really like to just kind of get in there and just iterate and brainstorm and, and do that, you know, in abundance. Does this, so this works with people who are in the room and people who are out of the room? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. So you could be on a, your laptop and I can see what you're doing when you're standing in front of a large screen. You could be on your mobile device and uploading content from your mobile device. Um, so yeah, it's multifaceted. Cool. I think there's implications for belonging and how people interact with this whole application. And so we should probably talk about your book because that's yeah, the whole that's... reason I invited you on the podcast <laughs> and I got this extra bonus stuff with Bluescape. Um, work Tribes, you said that it was a labor of love uh, in this particular book. I really love this book. I love the fact that it centers so much on belonging, which for me is fundamental aspect of being a successful leader and successful participant follower is having that sense of belonging. And even as an individual human being, belonging to something and whether it's a cause or a community or a group is so rewarding. So labor of love, why was it a labor of love for you? Well, and the reason why I mentioned that is because there's a, a story of belonging in it. So in the process of writing this book, I had two family members pass away, one of which was my father. And when we lose someone important to us relationally, it becomes this question of, well, how does the loss of my father change how I relate to this world, right? So when I lost you know, two family members, you know, it really took a lot out of me. I didn't, want, I didn't want to write the book anymore. However, when I thought about what my dad would say to me, um, he'd be like, dude, you got to get back on the train. So it really became this, these major life events that happened. And I'm just sharing with you a few of the events that had happened. And the relationships that surrounded those major life shifts were the inspirations to get back into writing this book. And truth be told, belonging is all about relationships and high quality relationships or what I call resonant relationships are central to having and experiencing belonging. And when you lose someone who is key and important to you, that, that, belong, that sense of belonging is challenged. So that's why it was a labor of love for me because I had to work through the losses and go, okay, now I got to get back to writing this book. And I found that in doing so, those losses helped me understand belonging more personally because suddenly I don't have a father anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? So that's why I say it's a labor of love. It's just a lot of personal stuff that I had to overcome to get back to writing the book. And yet the, your personal loss informed a lot of the depth of the book. I'm so sorry to hear of your loss. Um, I think losing somebody 
who I've in the last couple of months, I've been to three funerals. Um, so I understand a little bit of that yeah. grieving process. None of them as close to me as your father was to you. Um, so some of them were in, in parents of friends and one of them was a little bit closer to me and as a friend and his loss was sudden and unexpected. And, um, it rattled all of us who knew him well, cause he was such a beautiful person. And yeah. I think it's, it's sad that a funeral is an opportunity to bring a tribe together. Um, and that one thing I love about your book talks about creating moments so that we reinforce that sense of belonging and that we don't need these shock experiences to remind us that belonging matters and that we could have done more with each other. Thank you for sharing that, that part of yeah. what brought the book to fruition. And so belongingness, what sparked the idea for the book? I mean, you've been an organizational and change management consultant for a long time. Um, yeah. I'm guessing that some of that experience led to why you wrote the book. For sure. So, you know, belonging, you know, uh, first I have to say, when I read Brene Brown's work on belonging, I mean, that was very inspirational to me. I mean, she writes about it mostly in a sociological context. She's done a, a brilliant job in transcending that into the workplace. But for me, you're growing up and struggling with feeling valued, wanted, and welcomed was, uh, it was almost like a personal way of taking those experiences growing up where, you know, I was an awkward kid, I was struggling with my identity, my sexuality, and it's like, no, there's more to this than just a personal journey. Organizations are, at least the forward-looking ones, are looking at, all right, how do we help people excel in what they do? And, and Belonging, when I started kind of answering that question, started to surface more and more. And plus, it was just a personal, almost in a way, kind of this cathartic experience of finding a way to communicate how valuable it is to companies when teams can come together, despite their differences, despite the challenges that they face in, in terms of pressure to perform or short time frame to do something extraordinary, what's a key ingredient to that? And, and that's where belonging started to come up again and again is when teams don't worry about, gosh, does, does my performance matter or does my organization care about me as a, an employee? And am I feeling like I'm allowed to contribute my thinking to this problem? When those questions go away, what we learned in the research is that performance exceeds what the team even thought because the distracting thoughts about do I feel like I'm valued, wanted, and welcome are quieted. And now you can focus more of your cognitive functioning on doing the good work versus, gosh, she's always looking at me kind of funny. Did I say something to offend her? You know, the other day she kind of ignored me when I was in the cafe. And I know she's really upset because I sent that email that said something about Zoe's work and da-da-da-da-da. Right? The companies that we studied and the employees who perform in these companies, I don't want to say those go away because we're human beings, right? And we're very messy. But on the whole, those kind of worries are lessened. And what emerges more is the coming together and allowing our differences to really help us focus on doing great work. And in the process of doing great work, the team also comes together and starts to bond because they've accomplished something that's great, extraordinary, unexpected, rather than let's just focus on building great relationships. And, oh, the byproduct of that is great work. It's more dynamic than that, mm. what we learned. 
It's not sequential either. They kind of inform each other. Correct. Yeah, for sure. Diversity and inclusion you mentioned in the book and you say, oh, I'm worried that belonging could be operationalized and be turned into what's happened to diversity and inclusion and that it's become a program, a training situation. Um, can you speak a little bit to that, the di- what's happened in the diversity inclusion programming training space and how you think belonging should not do that? Well, so first of all, diversity inclusion is a way more complex matter than belonging and not to, to minimize the complexity of belonging. When we look at DNI or diversity and inclusion, you know, oftentimes companies are leveraging those concepts as a way to signal to stakeholders or shareholders or the workforce, hey, we're committed to having diversity, so we're going to intentionally focus on more women in our senior leadership ranks or you know, people of color who are uh, reflected across the organization. And those are way more complicated, often controversial topics that yes, they need to be addressed. However, what has happened is it becomes a quota, right? In, in Silicon Valley, you have Facebook and others, you're releasing how many women are in their workplace. Well, that's great that you've now increased your quota, what does that do for your business, right? Yes, optics look great to the media that, ooh, your senior leadership team is 50-50 or whatever it happens to be. Where belonging is different is it's not about a program. It's not about a quota. It's about helping any group of people find a way to or experience feeling valued, wanted, and welcome, which is the definition that I use. And that's not based on a quota. That's based on team dynamics. And that's based on what the leader does to be able to help the team run together faster and perform together better. You don't need uh, an initiative that says we need to have a belonging initiative. It's an outcome that comes from people who are working together and a leader who sets the tone to say, hey, we can work better together when we have these experiences of belonging, but it's not just up to me to create this experience, we all do it. And I think that's where diversity inclusion also differs is it tends to sit in HR, right? Or an HR function, or um, it becomes part of what shareholders are receiving in terms of what the company is doing for innovation or whatnot. Belonging is its a human experience. We all want it. We need it to feel like we can do our best work. It goes way, way back to when we were all furry, right? It's, 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 a, it's a safety. Some so, people are still furry. Yes, there are. I, I'm attempting to, people can't see my beard, but I'm attempting this furry thing and it, it, it's, it's, the verdict is out. But anyways, um, I think I give you a, a really kind of rambling answer to, you know, diversity inclusion tends to be more of a quota-driven conversation and a metric driven conversation where belonging is more of an experience that is harder to measure. I mean, you could do it, but it's way harder. Well, what comes to mind is uh, employee experience surveys or employee engagement surveys that say, you know, how do you feel about your workplace? How do you feel about your manager? Um, Do you feel welcome? Do you feel wanted? Do you feel valued? So um, that's still evidence and it's it's still self-reporting though. Yeah. one, in one of the parts of your book, you talk about we shouldn't or we can't, or maybe we can, operationalize or systemize belonging. What's your perspective on that? I mean, 
I hear what you're saying about diversity and inclusion. Don't turn it into a program. We don't do belonging as a program. It's an outcome of what we all do in terms of how we show up to work and how we engage with each other. Um, and then yet one of your case studies in there, we talked about LinkedIn and how they're attempting to operationalize it. So what's going on there? Yeah, it's, yeah. So, um, so part of that is me trying to prevent belonging or, I don't know, add to the conversation because I can't prevent anything. Once it's out there, it's out there. But in the conversation, the belonging, we have to be careful to think it is, you know, belonging is the outcome if we do one plus two plus three equals belonging, right? What LinkedIn is doing when we went into LinkedIn and talked to their, their DIBS team, diversity, inclusion, belonging team, they have found a way of saying, gosh, if we have these different types of programs, so one of their programs in, in, uh, is that they encourage their workforce to spend some time out in the community. The reason why they want them to do that is to understand that where they work, there's a whole life going on outside of that area. So how can you be part of the community? Well, that's a big component of belonging, right? So while you can have these programs, and I think those programs are valuable, and when we talk to employees about what their experience was, it definitely carried a a heartfelt connection to the company. What we have to be mindful of is just because that works at LinkedIn, that doesn't mean you could put that in your company because your way of looking at, you know, then we start getting into culture pieces. What one company does doesn't mean that's the right fit or the right approach for another. And so when we try to systematize, we try to say, I'm going to take what you do, plug it in over here and expect the same outcomes. It's not that simple, right? Human beings are messy. So if you really want to make it super simple, it really boils down to how am I as a leader modeling what it takes for my employees to experience belonging? And that becomes a much better way of embedding these practices and also training managers on these practices, right? Because the practice, the belonging practices that are in the book, one of the things that when we were looking at, well, what are the leaders doing in these companies? It was an interesting variation, a combination of things like, well, they make business decisions that are grounded in reality, rather, or they make decisions based on good business fundamentals. That's the language. And at the same time, they're interested in how they show up and the impact that they have as a leader, right? Those are all ways of developing a practice that encourages belonging to occur. We don't want to just do belonging for the sake of belonging. We want belonging to exist because we need to do great work. Well, and if we do great work and we feel good about what we do, that helps kind of this, they feed one another belonging. It's a virtuous cycle. Yeah. That's the way of looking for. Thank you. So, you know, if there's one thing that I would say is maybe don't operationalize or systematize belonging, but operationalize how you grow your leaders to be able to create the experience of belonging. We know uh, from a, a recent Gallup report on the state of American managers that an abysmal 18% of managers have the skills necessary for leading today's workforce. And those skills are mostly soft skills. So what that's saying is 82% of managers are ill-equipped to help create a positive work experience. That's appalling. 82% suck at people skills is basically yeah. what you just said. Yep. Yep. 
And then you, I mean, you can you can start layering on all these other different research reports that have come out over the past five years from various consulting companies. Organizations are woefully un have woefully unprepared their employee their leaders to be great managers. So if we look at belonging and how does a manager influence the experience of feeling valued, wanted, and welcome, well, that requires soft skills, like me understanding the impact that I have when I walk into a room and I just dump all over the team's performance and then walk out. The team's not going to feel that, <laughs> that, right? They're certainly not going to feel like they're wanted by, their, by the organization or that they're cared for by their manager. And, and, and unfortunately, when we look, take, look at the number of 82%, 82% of managers don't know the impact that they have on a room. And what's astonishing is the amount of money being spent on leadership training. So I wonder if, if that, if you layer over 82% of managers suck at people stuff, how many of them are actually undergoing leadership and management training and whether they're still sucking after the training, which speaks a lot yeah. to my industry um, or the lack of ability in the industry to, to transform yeah. changes. Do you have any um, research on that? The correlation uh, there? Uh, I, you know, it's been a while since I've looked at that. I, I have a, a, a very deep learning and development background. And one of the things that I have seen repeatedly over the, the course of my time in that industry is, you know, training is looked at as an event, right? You go to this training workshop to teach you how to be a better communicator and how to, or how to give and receive feedback as a leader, right? So you might have the most amazing instructor helping you get your insights. Where organizations falter is then integrating that after the managers return from that workshop and then holding them accountable to the, the behaviors that it requires to apply those soft skills. So if we were to take, say, creating a sense of belonging, you know, one of those leadership practices is know your, your leadership vitae, which is my kind of fancy word of saying, know what you're leaving behind. So when you are a leader today and you decide to go on to another team or another company, what are you leaving behind? Well, that's, that's a powerful question, but how does that translate into what happens back on the job, right? And so companies have to find ways of saying, okay, you are now responsible for what you leave behind. And so we're going to make sure that your bonus is tied to your development. Your bonus is tied to your growth in raising your awareness of your emotional intelligence. And there are companies who do phenomenal work around tying compensation to using evaluations in 360s to say, okay, has your boss shown, shown that he or she can actually show that they care about what they're leaving behind? And if the answer is no, then their, their bonus is impacted. So, so I think that's where learning and development and then what happens after the, the workshop, you've got to have a way of bringing them together. I think that does say that you don't just send people to whatever class they want because now you aren't able to control that conversation and what you are trying to get people to do. So I think um, having some way of monitoring behavior change is important. It's curious that you bring up tying that behavior change to compensation because it kind of goes against some of the research that Dan Pinksey put together in Drive, which yeah. putting a financial incentive up can actually decrease performance in whatever thing that you're getting them to do. Um, I know and that in the U.S. Believe you believe that too. It, and in the U.S., they have a much more than they do here in Australia. They have a massive bonus incentive scheme. It doesn't exist as much in corporate Australia as it does in, in corporate America. So you believe that that financial incentive can decrease it's the impact of behavior change? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a short-term motivator, right? However, when we look at, okay, so money's a short-term motivator. How do we get managers to want to apply the things that they just learned? The low-hanging fruit is to tie it to compensation. There can be other incentives like, okay, so what are your team's goals? Not, not your goal manager, not each of the persons on your teams, but how are they performing? And then how do we recognize that performance? So I think there have to be multiple layers to why a leader needs to grow his or her emotional intelligence. And, and I'll keep it in the context of belonging. If you want to create a sense of belonging or that experience of belonging, you know, the leadership practices that are in the book, sure, those are important to understand. It's what you're doing as an organization from a comp perspective, from motivating employees using purpose, autonomy, and mastery, which is what Dan Pink advocates. They have to know how to do that. And that requires various ways of motivating them to want to do that, not just to rely on what they've always done, but helping them see the fruits of that kind of mindset shift. And as you know, it's really hard for us as human beings to make these kind of behavioral shifts. It feels unsafe. It does, except that belonging has so many positive benefits. It's it's kind of an incentive in itself. Um, and one of the other things that you you critique early on in your book actually is that you throw you throw some rocks, you know, throwing rocks at these traditional management practices or philosophies. And two of them that you you take down a little bit is hiring people to fit the culture. And the other one, which I can't believe this is feels like sacrilege to even criticize. This is what gets measured gets managed. And it's ironic that we're just talking about that measuring. Yeah, so right. so yeah. tell me about that. Like, why are yeah. these false? profits of hiring people for culture fit and what gets measured gets managed. Why do you critique those? So let's start with the hire people to fit the culture because that's a really popular belief. And so, you know, I'm going to lean again on some of the work that Brene Brown has started in this space. And so she makes a distinction between fitting in and belonging, right? So fitting in is, well, if I fit in, there's a meaning I'm going to stop doing these things that are important to me, or I'm not going to say these ideas that I hold because I don't want to be viewed as an idiot or, you know, raising unnecessary conflict. Fitting in means you suspend who you are or part of who you are so that you don't cause ripples in the pond, so to speak. So when we look at, we hire people to fit the culture. Basically what we're saying is we just hire people to support the culture. And if, if you, don't fit this mold, well, then you're not going to fit in. Well, now you just got a bunch of people who are like one another. And now you start to water down the value of cognitive diversity, how people think differently. Instead, what we want to be able to look at is what can you contribute to this organization? And here are some of the elements of our culture. Let's look at what you can contribute. Let's look at the way that you approach solving problems. Let's look at the way that you can have difficult conversations. And by the way, can you have those difficult conversations without being, you know, attacking someone or feel attacked? Those type of explorations of, well, who would you work here? If you look at those questions compared to the type of culture that you have or want, that's a much richer way of saying, hey, we've got this culture and upholding these cultures or these values, these beliefs. And we're going to inquire and see how do you 
align with that because that's a much more interesting conversation than saying, well, we all believe that you know conflict is important. So if you can't handle conflict, then you can't work here. Well, maybe that's true. But if you're trying to put everybody in the same box, you're going to homogenize the workforce and suddenly you're, you're going to have an issue with too many people like one another. And that starts to undermine not only diversity and inclusion, but it starts to undermine belonging because I don't feel valued because I'm having to fit in because I've got this contrarian idea and I don't feel safe to say it. So therefore I'm not going to say it. So really it's more looking at what can you bring that advances our culture that is aligned with our culture versus how do you fit in and do like what we all do. And that could be requiring people to fit in in, in dysfunctional ways. Yeah, I once worked with a senior executive and this whole fitting in thing and belonging thing is, is, was interesting for her. She was a very professional woman. So she came from a very professional background and she was now working as a senior leader in a large not-for-profit. And they had different ways of doing things in the not-for-profit sector than they did in, the, in a legal entity, professional legal entity. And she showed up every day dressed to the nines, exquisite suits and so on. And everybody else wore jeans and very relaxed. And everybody felt awkward around her because she looked stunning and professional and they did not. And there was kind of this, it created tension. It wasn't welcome. It wasn't supported and so on. And she felt like, I can't be, I don't want to dress in jeans. That's not what I do at work. And so she felt ostracized. Um, yeah. What, what's that's, your comment on that? Example. Well, that's a great example of making people fit in, right? Instead of a culture that says, I don't care how you're dressed. I care what you contribute, right? So if you want to show up in your Prada outfits, so what, right? What value are you bringing to the team? What value are you bringing to the company? That's way more important. See, that worry about, oh, she's dressing in that Prada outfit while we're in our Levi's and, and T-shirts and sneakers that's the wrong conversation to have. And that just takes you down a rabbit hole that you get stuck in. That's going to undermine your performance. I don't want, I don't want to have a conversation with you about how nicely you're dressed. I want to know how can you help us solve this problem so that we can you know, improve our product or improve our services. And you happen to be wearing product. Great. That's a much richer conversation than getting sucked down the rabbit hole of, well, you showed up today in that really expensive outfit and you're now making me feel inferior. And so I'm going to ostracize you or talk behind your back. Yeah, no, that's not going to, that's not sustainable. Or I'll even go as far as to say, that's what we've had for decades, centuries in organizations. We now have a more aware workforce who says, yeah, there's a better conversation to have and it's not around whether Sally over there is dressed in Prada and everybody else is dressed in their Levi's. Does Sally, can she do her job better? Can she contribute at a higher level? Does she feel valued, wanted, and welcome? That's a much more enriching conversation than the, let's, let's take pot shots at each other because Sally looks different. I, th I agree. It is a much more valuable and rich conversation to talk about things that that really do matter and make a difference and at the same time that those kinds of as I watched this unfold a little bit what surfaced yeah. were the underpinning the unstated values that were at play in the organization and especially in not-for-profits I've worked I've worked with a lot of not-for-profits I've 
been an employee in three of them over 30 years, and that money, wealth, prestige is a tainted conversation or it's got barbs to it when you're in the not-for-profit sector. It's, it's a deep value money system set. And I think the value in the conversation would be to talk about that and yeah. what it means when somebody dresses well, spends money on clothes and other people who don't. What does that mean to them? How does it make them feel? And actually, you could probably have those conversations if you do have a sense of safety and belonging in the, in the company and say, hmm, you know, I've triggered, I've brought in my expensive purse. I've spent 750 bucks on it. Um, that's triggering something for you. Let's talk about that. But that's money is not an easy conversation in most places. Can I share a story that maybe might help il- illustrate this? In a, yeah, in go a for it. Way. So one of the companies that we studied is, a re- it's a family owned restaurant in Seattle called Canless Restaurant. Canless Restaurant is now being run by the third generation uh, brothers of the second generation owners or uh, business run owners where their parents. So at Canlis, in short, what they do is they create experiences, dining experiences, and their mission is to turn people to, towards one another. They just happen to do that through hospitality. What was fascinating to me was, first of all, in an industry that is pretty well known for bad working conditions, people with awful work schedules because they're, you know, might be closing the restaurant one night and the next morning they're opening it, right? Um, so they're exhausted. Instead of that kind of mentality, the two brothers, Mark and Brian Canlis, they do things that reinforce how valued, wanted, and welcome employees are. So let me give you an example. And the reason why I'm sharing this is because organizations can choose to fall into familiar rote ways of looking at creating quote unquote, a positive culture versus shifting the conversation to, well, what can we do that lets people know that, no, we need you here. So one of the things that they do on each night that they have, they open the restaurant for business is they have what they call an executive meeting. So the executive meeting comprises of all the leads from the various parts of the restaurant, the front of the house, the back of the house, the kitchen, the service, et cetera. And they run through that night's reservations. And we sat in and watched this meeting. I think it takes place in like 15, 20 minutes. And the CEO goes to each person and asks what they know about that particular reservation. And if you don't know what you need to know as it relates to that particular reservation, he doesn't make you feel bad. He says, this is an important part of how this show runs. Next time, come to the meeting with that information, right? It's like, it's <laughs> direct, yeah. but it's also very caring and it's also focusing on results, right? So you've got that element, right? Show up prepared. That's not a novel idea. Mm. They hold people to that. Then what they do is they move into the team dinner. So before the first guests show up, everybody who's working that night, they're fed and they sit down together, have a meal together. And then the CEO will have, you know, updates about that night's reservations, things that they need to know about, hey, you know, the Smiths are coming in and we know about the Smiths and how much Sally likes this. But then they also start weaving in activities that help the team know one another beyond what their role is in the organization. So this particular time they were doing show and tell, right? You had to show or tell something that nobody would know about you. And it had to be, you know, something personal something meaningful, something to help us connect with you. 
So when you start adding up a lot of these different activities that center not just around me feeling valued, wanted, and welcome, but what also inspires performance, you start to get a conversation around, we have something extraordinary here. We accomplish great things together. We need to protect this. So he pushes the responsibility beyond just the leadership team, but to everybody in the organization. And what happens is we're no longer worrying about what Sally's wearing in her Prada suit. We're now worried about, well, does Sally know the, and I couldn't see this, the playbook that we all follow to make sure that we deliver the same extraordinary experience to their guests. So it's now the conversation shifts from what Sally's wearing to, does Sally know the playbook? And so if Sally doesn't know the playbook, or maybe I don't know the playbook, we're going to study the playbook together as a team before we have our first dinner guests come in. So they start focusing on activities that help them perform, but bring them together as opposed to catty conversations that tear us apart because Sally happens to be wearing Prada and the rest of us are wearing jeans and a t-shirt and sneakers. So it's, it was just a really, it's a subtle shift on where you focus you know, in, in, in some ways, you could say, well, it's just kind of what we were taught in elementary school, right? You'll be kind to others. Yeah, but it's in a business context, it's about results, right? The business needs to succeed in order for us to be successful. Belonging just happens to fuel success as well as holding teams together. The question is, how do you construct the way that you run the business that allows for that to happen. Canlis just does it. I don't even know that they think about what they're doing and how it contributes to belonging. It just happens to be an amazing example of what happens when people care about what they're doing and care that if we care for our people, they're going to do something extraordinary. And that's an oversimplification, obviously, but that's what they've done. And they've done it brilliantly. I mean, so brilliant, they've earned a Michelin star. You don't just earn a Michelin star because you just happen to be good. It takes discipline. It takes practice. It takes hiring the right people. It takes having the hard conversations. It takes not tolerating people who might be extraordinary, but they're toxic and undermine performance. And it means that you act on that. That's where the differences start to emerge between these companies that you know, have these catty, toxic cultures versus these companies that are very methodical and very intentional, or these teams that are very methodical and intentional about making sure they're doing the things that help the team perform and focus on, in this case, a sense of belonging. Well, it sounds like to me, and it's a beautiful story, that the organizations that are having catty conversations, it's because they're not having the rich conversations. So they feel they don't have rich conversations. There's a void of significant conversation. They fill that with gumph. And I think your example is that when people have something more meaningful to talk about, they don't care about the little stuff because it's so juicy and powerful to be talking about what are we contributing here? How do we make people feel welcome in our restaurant? How do we, how do we get to know each other better as teams? That's, that's way more interesting than, you know, look what she's wearing. Um, so that's a really powerful observation about structured conversation and structured intent about what we're doing that fits both operational results as well as the human side of it. Yeah. We got to meet uh, the second generation Canlis, so Brian and, and Mark's mom and dad. And one of the things that she said to us, my research partner and I, is we're really about what does it mean to be in relationship? 
Yeah, that's a really peculiar question if you think about it, it from a yeah. business perspective, right? You might hear that from your therapist or <laughs> some kind of workshop that you go to to become a better human being. But for her to say, we're really interested in what does it mean to be in relationship? That's a whole different conversation. That leads to a whole different set of expectations than what does your, uh, your duty statement say? Well, yeah, you need to do that because you've got HR and you've got to stay legal and all that kind of stuff. It's a very different question that leads to, for them, led to some extraordinary outcomes and extraordinary people working in that company. One of the things you mentioned in the book is, can you have too much belonging? Yeah. What do you mean by that? So, you know, I think there's always too much of a good thing. Too much belonging, in this case, if there's this, like, strong sense of feeling value wanted and welcomed, and it's not coupled with your performance, then really what you're doing is you're just kind of coddling people and not holding them accountable to wanting to do something, right? So if there's this overwhelming sense of feeling value wanted and welcomed, is it being supported and upheld by the fact that the business has needs. If it's just about belonging, well, then now you're creating this great country club where people feel good, right? But there's not the sense of performance. Really, in the business context, belonging is just as much about feeling value wanted and welcomed, as well as can we achieve these extraordinary results that we want to achieve? I love that. So it's bringing accountability back into it. And your example with the restaurant was that's what they did. It's not just about showing up and having a party with the staff. It's like, no, this has got business outcomes. You need to know about that, that couple, that booking, that reservation. That's lovely. So one last question. Sure. What's your top tip to leaders? Like if you had one thing that leaders could walk away with and saying, do this and they'll make a big difference, what would that one thing be? I know that's a really brutal question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Yeah, that was, gosh. So, you know, where my head is these days after writing the book, after uh, going through all of the research with my research partner, Bruce Elliott, wonderful guy, shout out to you, Bruce, um, <laughs> is, you know what? Don't wait for your manager to tell you to do this. You don't need permission to create a positive work experience. Everybody's under the expectation that you have to perform. So if you're going to do it, the best place to start is working on your self-awareness, knowing what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what are your, the things that derail your performance. If you invest in that, and I don't care how you do it, but if you diligently invest in that, you are going to become more aware about how you influence the relationships on your team and how you influence what the team does so that when you walk out the room, you know how you influence people in that room. If you don't know that, then it's going to be harder for you to help shape an experience of belonging. If you don't do that, it's going to be harder for you to get people to want to do something, not just mediocre or expected, but extraordinary. It starts with you. Gallup, once again, Gallup says 70% of what employees experience and engagement is based on their immediate boss. So do the work, focus on yourself, focus on your self-awareness so that you could be better for the people that are looking to you to lead them. And if you're not interested in that, and I'll be very direct, then you're not interested in having extraordinary performances. If 
you're just interested in maintaining what's good for you, what's mediocre, and you won't have people going, I will follow you to the ends of this earth because you care about me. So it's a choice. And I'm saying, if you want this to happen, you have to focus on how, what your emotional intelligence is and knowing how you show up and what your impact is. I like that. So don't be one of the 82% that suck at people stuff. Be one of the 18%. <laughs> right. Let's boost that number, man. Yeah, that's right. Sean, where can people find you? Yeah. So, so this is a, this is a slightly awkward question right now because I'm in the process of redoing my, my personal brand blog. So in the future, it'll be get Sean um, <laughs> I love that. Get it's the best way right now is to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm Sean Murphy, S-H-A-W-N-M-U-R-P-H-Y. And that's probably the best way. And that way we can stay connected. And if you want to talk about, if you want to connect with me, email me at Sean at GetSeanMurphy.com. Again, that's S-H-A-W-N at GetSeanMurphy.com. Awesome. And we'll put those links in the show notes, which will be at ZoeRouth.com slash podcast slash work tribes. <laughs> Sean, thank you so much for being on the podcast and generously sharing all of your wisdom and all the research that went into this fantastic book, which I highly recommend, Work Tribes. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Zoe.